We're going to be looking at the book of James. We've been studying the book of James, and it is on my heart for us to be looking through application. We get a lot of theology at Grace Community Church, but sometimes we need to take a step back and just look at application. Today's sermon is here to supplement, to complement everything we've been studying in the book of James. I want it to be very simple. I want it to be very practical. I want this sermon to be helpful so that you yourselves can take a step back and look at examples, real people, Old Testament, real historical people, and see how did they pass. Or if they did not pass, the test of faith written out in the book of James. So please turn with me to the book of James. We've been studying this book, and the main theme of this book is a test of true faith. How time and truth always reveals a person's ability to work out their faith through good works. Summary verse, James 1.22. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Because you can hear the word of God, but if you're not applying it, if you're not doing it, then your faith is bankrupt. The main idea of the book of James is there has to be a real outworking, a real relationship between your faith and your works. Because if you have faith in God, then you will have works that honor and glorify God. Because James 2.26 clearly says, faith without works is dead. And today it is my intention now to apply these truths to four real historical people. So keep your finger in the book of James, and then we're going to to go to the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5 is a very sequential narrative book. The outline of today is so simple and so easy, anyone is gonna, is anyone's going to get lost. That's why we can do two books at once. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we see the prophet Elisha. Most of you know of the miracles and the signs of the prophet of Elisha. In our family household, We have two stories that we love about Elisha, how Elisha was able to save the axe head that fell in the water by throwing his staff or a stick. We also, and this is particularly my son, he loves the story of how when he was being attacked by young thugs, if you will, he called upon two female mother bears who mauled and who protected him and basically destroyed 40 plus young men. But Elisha is also mentioned in the book of Luke. And Elisha healed the pagan Naaman. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Most of you also have heard of Naaman. Naaman is that Gentile, the captain of the Syrian army, who, by faith, listened and submitted submitted to what Elisha had said and went and dipped himself seven times and was healed of his leprosy. So we have Elisha, we have Naaman, and we also have Gehazi. 
Now, most of us don't know or don't really have a grasp on who Gehazi is. Gehazi is the one who completely failed his test of faith. Gehazi is a warning for us Christians, and we have a lot to learn from Gehazi. So please, read with me 2 Kings verse 5. I'm going to read the first 14 verses, and that will be our first section of today. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master, a highly respected, and highly respected because by him, Yahweh had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. This would be approximately six million dollars worth of liquid cash. Verse 6. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. It happened, and we know nothing happens outside of God's providence. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, So Elisha himself does not go to meet and greet the captain. He sends his messenger. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored. Restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought, he will surely come out to me and shall stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, very, very kindly speaking. Had the prophet told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and, and be clean? So humbled and obediently, he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. 
and his flesh was restored. Like the flesh of a little child, he was clean. Thus says the word of God. We have so many things to unpack here today. But I want to start with verse 1. Let's look at the situation, the desperate situation of a man who has leprosy, the captain of the Syrian army. Verse 1. Now Naaman, the captain of the army of the, of the king of Aram, or ancient Syria, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him, Yahweh had given victory to Adam. The man was also a valiant warrior and a leper. This is our first introduction to Naaman. And what does it say? He's a dangerous man. He's a mighty man. He's a powerful man. This man is also a leper. Leprosy was highly contagious and there was no cure. This word, this comes from the Greek word lepra, from lepis, which means scales. The, the, the skin becomes scaly, if not scales. This is a bacterial infection. And the average incubation of it was five years. So you can have it for five years and not even know about it. Second Chronicles says it's a death sentence. It's a lifelong disease that will assuredly take your life. It basically slowly eats at your cartilage. It's very, very difficult to look at. It's very difficult to, to have it and to bear. In my life, if I'm not mistaken, I have seen someone, there was a homeless man who had leprosy. I was, I was on a walk with my son, and I saw someone, and his face was white, and it was just so difficult this poor man, I couldn't even look at him. Imagine having that in the ancient world with no cure. The only thing that Israel or the Israelites would do is that they would send them away. They would isolate them. And this is seen in the book of Leviticus, chapter 13 and Numbers 5. However, this wasn't the case in the other parts of the world. This way, Naaman, although he had leprosy, was still able to function as a captain of the, Syrian, of the Syrian army and was able to go out, meet, and try to find a cure. In God's sovereignty, the Arameans, verse 2, had gone out in bands and taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And this girl now has one single occupation, to serve Naaman's wife. This is where you can see, parents, please take the time. Because the Hebrew text is very clear. This, was not an this wasn't a teenager or an adolescent. This was a, a young maiden. Parents, take time with your children because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. But here you see that this little girl has still kept her faith. This little girl is still keeping the promises. She is living according to the covenant that her people, God's elect people, have with Yahweh. This girl passes the test of faith. And we see in verse 3, she has boldness in her faith. She says to her, to her mistress, verse 3, 
I wish that my master were here with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. What does Naaman do? Naaman, having exhausted every single source, every single possibility, every single medication, listens to this little girl. And God uses his suffering so that this Naaman would be set out upon a journey to go seek out the prophet of God and ultimately for God to work through him and by grace alone to save Naaman. But Naaman has to first get permission from his master. Verse 4. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who was from the land of Israel. With great haste, then the king of Aram, verse 5, said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. This king of Syria was most probably Ben-Hadad II. He also was a very powerful king. Naaman departs with his entire entourage, with gold and silver and change of clothes, very, very expensive stuff. He's desperate, but he's ready. And he has one single intention. He wants to buy his miracle. At no matter the cost. Money and bribery was the only thing he was accustomed to. That's the only thing he knew. And Naaman is hoping that he can pay for a cure. Yet, however, even in his desperate state, don't forget he's still prideful. He is traveling with an entire garrison. Verse 9 mentions with horses and chariots. Verse 13 says with many other servants. So he travels and picture that there's an entire garrison marching upon the land of Israel. The letter reaches the king of Israel. This is King Jehoram. And now we're going to see our first case analysis. Verse 7. The king reads the letter. And what does he do? He tears his clothes. And he says, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. I have sent name and my servant to you that you may cure him of his leprosy. You see, the king of Israel woke up like every single other morning. He didn't acknowledge God. He didn't read his Bible. He didn't, he didn't pray. And now he sees in total astonishment that there's an entire battle-ready captain at his door. He immediately tears his clothes, a sign of extreme distress. Why does the king of Israel, shouldn't he know better? Why does the king of Israel react this way? Because deep down inside, he knew that leprosy was a death sentence, and he knew that, or he did not trust, in fact, Yahweh, nor the prophet of Elisha. And he was convinced that if Elisha failed, this would lead to war between the two countries. And now we come, and you can stay in Second Kings, but I'm going to start referencing the book of James. James 3, verses 13 and 8 says, The king was focused on his worldly wisdom, his trust on his chariots, or his trust upon his strength outweighed the godly wisdom that came from above. 
It's a shame to witness such a total and complete failure in leadership on the part of the king of Aram. The king of Aram is basically a coward. He doesn't trust Yahweh. He doesn't trust Elisha. He trusts in nothing but what he sees. Let's look at this king with James. James chapter 1, 12. James exhorts the Christian to respond to their trial with what? Perseverance. That's the hupomeno word that Pastor Harry loves to use. To endure it, not to buckle. James 1.12 says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What could the king have done differently? The first thing he should have done, we can see in James chapter 1, verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, and clearly he did, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. And it will be given to him. That, that wasn't even his instinct. Because he had never done it in the past. Reading down in verse 6. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like a surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. You see, wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. We see that in James chapter 3, verse 17. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This was the furthest thing from the mind of the king. James 4, 7 to 8 says, you must humble yourself. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will what? Flee from you. Draw near to God, verse 8, and he will draw near to you. And finally, verse 10 of the same chapter. Once again, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. Cornerstone, next time you are faced with a trial, please do not act like the king of Israel. Next time you receive a text message or you receive a call, you receive, or you receive something in the mail with an exorbitant amount or you have some really bad news, don't do this. Pray, meditate, humble yourself. Go to the book of James. Read and take the time and trust in Yahweh. There is a passage that our household has been anchored in or focused on, and it's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16, 17, and 18. This is something I really want to encourage everyone for you to take a look at. Because Christians, we need to be tough. And the only way you are going to be tough is if you're in God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16 reads, Rejoice always, Pray without ceasing, but it doesn't stop there. Verse 18 reads, And everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. There is godly stress that is forced upon you, that is meant to stretch you so that your faith grows 
And as your faith grows, you have a greater trust in the Lord Jesus. The king of Israel fails the test of true faith. He will forever go down in recorded scripture as someone who completely failed his God-ordained role for Israel. And time and truth has made it clear. His faith was without works. Why? Because there was no relationship between his faith and his works. The king fails spectacularly. But the text is contrasted with a magnificent example of someone who held on to his faith. And this is the prophet of God, the man of God. This is Elisha. Verse 8. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel, that he had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know there is a prophet in Israel. Elijah, Elisha is unshakable in his faith. This man of God has been tested, and God has proved faithful. And now he realizes this is just another test. And he has to persevere in his faith. You see, the king wanted nothing to do with Nahum. Elisha now calls him, calls this powerful man to his home to deal with him directly. Elisha knows the power of God. He has seen it once. He has seen it all throughout his life. And now he is going to beseech and he's going to pray and he's going to go to Yahweh for their safety and deliverance. He understands James 1, verses 2 until 4. And this should be written on your heart. James 1, 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do not be surprised that trials come. It is promised to you. How you react to these trials will prove your faith and it will help you grow in your knowledge of Christ. Although it's not mentioned, I'm sure Elisha, the first thing he did was just fall to the ground in worship and in prayer. James 5, 16 reads, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And verse 17 references Elisha's master, Elijah. Elisha would have surely seen how Elijah was acting, how he was prayerful. Because it reads, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and sky poured rain, and the earth produced fruit. You see, it has to be natural for the Christian to receive a trial and then to go to God. That is our clear understanding of the book of James. We will be tested. Do not be surprised when the test comes. Make sure you endure it well. Because 
when you have lived out personally an entire lifetime of God's providence, you have confidence in the Lord. You have faith. And you understand that these trials are helpful. They are actually necessary to our Christian life. Because when you go through trials and you have your testimony, you can look back and say, the Lord was faithful and he will be faithful again. And that is what Elisha is doing. Let's get back to this epic showdown between Naaman and Elisha. Let's go back to verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariot and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent the messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. I want you to picture an entire presidential motorcade, which is called the beast. Imagine 40, 50 vehicles come to your home with the full authority of the president and you don't even answer the door and you send, let's say, one of your children. Why does Elisha do that? He does not go meet the great captain of the army because he does not want to give a glimmer of hope that this man would be able to purchase a miracle from God. He sends his messenger. He wanted it to be very clear in the mind of Naaman, I am not like one of those false prophets. I am a prophet of Yahweh. And all he does is this clear prescription, go, wash, and be healed. He knew that the miracle and the power would come from God and not from him. And from this here, we see the total opposite of all these false healers and preachers today. They want the glory. Elisha here wants none of it. He wants to give all the glory to God. So a question now for you. Did Elisha pass the test of faith? I think it's absolutely clear he did. He's our example of how believers should be when they are faced with an impossible task, an impossible God-given challenge. Time and truth have made it clear. The man of God has passed the true test of faith and that his works have proven his faith and his faith is not dead. Who was so bittered, a man who couldn't have even possibly thought that he would ever have an encounter or have a relationship with Yahweh. This usually, in this sermon, this usually is Naaman, who is the person that's most highlighted. But we want to look at this conversion. We need to look at this conversion. Verse 11. Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and picture in a way, just wave his hand. Naaman was hoping that Elisha would have some type of magic. I think that's the main essence of this text. But what happens is, he's sort of rejected. He's sort of he, he's not properly 
he's not properly respected. And there's purpose to that. This is a man of much power, and he is disrespected. Naaman is left there at the doorstep of Elisha. He is still a leper, but now he's insulted. What do you think a man in his power would do? He would go back, get his army, and burn down the entire, all of Israel. He's a savage man. He would, have, he would have responded in the same exact manner as the king of Israel thought. You see, if Naaman would have simply submitted to the prophet of God's request, he would have been healed. But his pride and his anger is what is preventing him from being healed. But God in his grace refuses or does not permit this captain to go and sin further. And he sends Naaman's lowly of lowly servants to bring to his ear some wisdom. Verse 13 says, This servant came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then? When he says to you, wash and be clean. This was a divinely sent test by God to bring out the inner darkness of Naaman. This was meant to expose the unbelief and the pride of Naaman. But don't forget, Naaman is broken and he's humbled. And using good sense, verse 14 reads, he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh literally means was white and would be as if a youngster or a lad. He was now cured. This is a clear miracle of God. Naaman is healed of his leprosy. And he makes a clear statement that from verse 15, we can say that Naaman is converted because he says, behold now, I know there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. This would be monergistic regeneration. Naaman is saved and Israel should not have been surprised that Gentiles would be saved. You see, there's only one way of salvation. And it is the same way in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. Salvation is through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Here, he is saved by his faith. He is in the same, he is in the same Gentile group as Ruth, Rahab, the, mo- the boatman in the book of Jonah. Why did Yahweh save this Gentile? Only to show his grace. In the Old Testament, they were saved by grace alone and faith alone, looking ahead or forward to the Messiah alone. Now, in the New Testament or in our times, we are saved by grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone, looking back at the Messiah who came and who was crucified, the Christ who came and was crucified on the cross. Naaman, who was once condemned by his sin, is now redeemed and is a child of Yahweh. Converted Naaman now goes and has a conversation with Elisha. We see that in verse 15. He came and stood before him and was basically begging him to take a gift. But Naaman refused to take a gift. He refused to take a thank you or an acknowledgement gift. Why do you think he did that? 
He really, and this is where you can see the heart of a Christian minister. To whom does the glory belong? As you minister and as you have influence in the lives of your family, of your, of your neighbors, in the church, do you expect anything from God? Or is all the glory due to God alone? Elisha did not have any selfish motives. He knew the power of the healing came from God and all the glory had to be to God alone. And this contrasts very specifically to the evil heart of greedy Gehazi. And that's what we're going to look at. We saw the weak king of Israel. We saw faithful Elisha. We saw pagan Naaman now converted. And Gehazi, who was never mentioned before, suddenly appears. And this is meant so that it's a shock to the reader. Gehazi is the last character that we have to analyze. Greedy Gehazi has an agenda. And he has a plan because he wants to get paid. Verse 20. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this name in the Aramean by not receiving from his hands what he brought. And notice, as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. Did you get that? Elisha's servant is disappointed in how his master selflessly acted. He is jealous. He's angry as Elisha. The book of James warns us of worldly jealousy. We see this in James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and evil in every single thing. You see, Gehazi had that in his heart. He wanted something more. It was not enough. He wanted to profit from God's miracle. He was not satisfied with the simple going away. And if you notice in verse 16, he invokes the name of Yahweh. He even dares to take an oath in the name of God when he says, as the Lord leaves. That is a darkened heart. Remember, sin always has to start somewhere. And it usually starts with a false justification of what you deserve. You have ambition, you have an agenda, and you want more than what is offered to you by God. You deserve, you think you deserve something more, or you think you deserve, you think you deserve something from God for the time and the hours and the resources or the money you're investing. God does not need your money. What God needs is your faith. God needs your faithfulness and obedience. Verse 21. Hungry Gehazi is pursuing Naaman. And the text wants to make a comparison between the same manner that the captain Naaman was pursuing his cure. Now you see 
greedy Gehazi pursuing Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, it's all well. Don't forget, now this is the captain stepping down to talk to, uh, to Gehazi. And as we come to verse 22, I want you to have Harry's teaching on the tongue in your ear. Think about this. He does it much better than I do. He's... <clears throat> and he said, verse 22, Gehazi says, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, and that's the first lie. His master never sent him. Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. That's Gehazi's second lie. What does he do? He invokes the authority of the man of God, of the prophet. He's trying to manipulate Naaman here. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. This was the sinful plan of Gehazi all along. He is robbing Naaman, at, not by gunpoint, but with his tongue. We know that the book of James says much about the tongue. James 1.26 says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and this is a, it's a specific example of someone who may think he is religious, but is not a servant of God. This is a false servant of God and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. This man's religious is worthless. This man's religion is worthless. We also see in James 3.8, no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And James 5 talks about the test of truthfulness, the test of truthfulness in verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, or of any oath. But let your yes be a yes. But your yes is to be a yes, and your no, no. So that you may not fall under judgment. James judges Gehazi. He cannot, Gehazi cannot bridle his tongue. He has deceived his own heart. His faith is worthless. His tongue is spewing evil and deadly poison. And he wrongly used the Lord's name in vain. Trusting Naaman in verse 23 basically gives Gehazi $40,000 worth of liquid cash or silver. Gehazi in verse 23, see, he gives him double what was requested, what was asked. And this is where you cannot see the depth of sin in a person's heart. Not only does Gehazi take, take advantage of redeemed Naaman, he makes Naaman's servant carry all that silver and the clothes all the way back to his home. Can you believe that? There is no depth to sin. And I think we can all agree that Gehazi failed the test of faith. And, we sh and it showed that his faith was without works and that he has no relationship. There was no relationship between his faith in Yahweh and in his, worth, in his works. And this proves, James 2.26, 
His faith was dead. Don't be like Gehazi. Understand your calling. Understand as Christians, we have influence. We have influence like you cannot believe. People are watching us and we just have to be faithful. This sin against God does not go unpunished. And in the last summary or the conclusion, we see a bitter judgment upon Gehazi. Verse 25. But he, Gehazi, went in and stood before his master. Gehazi's illegal enterprise completed. Now he returns to see Elisha. And Elisha asks, where have you been? Don't forget, this is a man of God. This is a prophet of God. He knows very clearly what happened. But Elisha is trying to do something. Elisha is trying to practice James 5, 19 and 20. Elisha is trying to bring back the sinner into the fold. Verse 19 reads, My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, and that's what Elisha is trying to do, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. Look at the heart. Look at the pastoral heart of Elisha here. You see, Gehazi, what Gehazi was trying to do was pathetic. He knows. He has seen the signs and the miracles of Elisha. He knows. But he is so deep in his sin, he's so far gone that he refuses to humble himself, ask forgiveness, to confess what he did, and, and just be forgiven. And this is one of the saddest parts of the story now. Verse 26. Then he, Elisha, said to Gehazi, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall now cling to you and to your descendants. And so he went out from his presence. Gehazi leaves the presence and is now a leper. Gehazi was judged without mercy. He chose the riches and comfort of this world. He stole from God's glory and he was punished by the same thing that Naaman said. And this brings the whole story full circle. He is now punished with a death sentence, which is leprosy. And verse 17 says, to him and to all of his descendants. Question, is this too bitter? Is this too much? I would say do not feel an ounce of remorse for Gehazi. Gehazi here is like Judas Iscariot, who was close to our Lord and yet betrayed him. Gehazi had seen the miracles. He had spent time with Elisha. Elisha had poured into the life of Gehazi. And this life and this leprosy, this death sentence was worthy of him. Gehazi was convinced that he deserved more. You see, at a certain point in your life, you just have to accept the fact that you cannot get everything that you want. 
At a certain point in your life, you have to understand there are things that your neighbors and other people have that are so much better than what you have. But you have to remember that every single good thing given and every single perfect gift from above comes from who? The Lord. And that's James, James chapter 1. You have to be content with what you have. And what you have is a God-given gift and must be used to further God's kingdom. So don't run after fortune or fame. Set your lives to be content with what the Lord has given you and understand what you have and the quantity of what you have is perfectly provisioned for you. You see, 2 Kings 5 reminds us that God cannot be mocked. If you call yourself a Christian and say you have faith, but your works are dead, do not think you can mock God. Gehazi, now a leper, has shown that his faith was absolutely bankrupt. Reading 2 Kings with a backdrop or through the lens of the book of James should be a cold shower to us this morning. It should wake us up to the reality that our faith cannot be dead. This morning we saw that through the faith and conviction of a little girl, and don't forget that, the whole story started with a faithful girl who was sure in his God. Naaman the leper sought out the prophet of God. This brought him to the king of Israel. And we saw the utter and complete disaster of the king's faith. This lack of faith was set, was contrasted with Elisha's faith. And this is exemplary faith. We saw Naaman converted and his clear statement that there is no other God but Yahweh in verse 15. And then we saw that evil ambition, the greed of Gehazi, he was punished. And he was punished with his life. We cross-reference these four lives with the entire book, the book of James. And James, and let me remind you, exhorts us today to count it all joy when we experience trials. For trials produces maturity. James 1. Verses 2 to 4. To pray to God when you lack wisdom. And I promise you, we lack wisdom every single day. That's James 1 to 5. To be mindful of your failings and that God is not the one who tempts. It is our heart. James 1, 13 to 15. That when tempted, and we will all be tempted, to run to God and to always be steadfast in prayer and to be doers of the word. And not only hearers. That's James 1.22. We also saw in James 2.14.26 that there has to be a true outworking of your faith. There has to be a relationship between your faith and your works. Because your faith is dead without your works. And time and truth always go hand in hand. There might be some here today who claim to be Christians. Who, are, who know all the lingo. Who know everything. Who come to church. But James exhorts you to examine your life and to say, where are your works? 
We know that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4 to 6. And all we need is to just ask God in prayer. And he is so faithful and he will answer your prayers. And at our first reaction to any trial, and the trials will come, we run to God, James 5. It was my intention to sort of have taken the truths of James and to apply it to those who were successful and who those who were complete failures. Because as soon as we finish, we need to be reminded of both. Because as soon as you leave this door, a trial may come to you. Please be steadfast and pass your test of faith. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the power of your word. We see in the book of James so much wisdom. We know that one day we will be tempted and that you will help us overcome this temptation. Help us to follow the path of our Lord. Help us to follow the example of Elisha. Our prayer here today is that every single person may have a life of good works unto the Lord. For everyone here to be doers of the word, that no one may be self-deceived or self-deluded. For everyone here in Cornerstone to treat each other with love and respect and to be strong in the faith of our Lord. And if there's anyone here today that is still in the flesh, Lord, may your spirit draw them to you. Give them a transformed life. Give them interest in, your, in the things of the spirit because we know your mercy is everlasting and the day of salvation is today. Please be with our Pastor Harry as, in, as he is in Nebraska. Be with Pastor Mark Tatlock as he is in Indonesia and be with, be with Pastor John as he preaches right now in big service. We are grateful, Lord. Strengthen us and help us pass this test of faith, which is our life. We pray this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Through the Son's name we pray. Amen.